Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Radical Americas podcast. I'm your host, William Booth. Later in this episode, I chat to Nicole Wilson about, among other things, the Haitian Revolution and the remembrance of slavery. But first of all, here's a conversation I had with Lucas Rickett before Christmas. I'm speaking by telephone to Lucas Rickett, who's a lecturer at the University of Strathclyde and history, and the history of the intersections between medicine, regulation, uh, and politics. Uh, so, hi, Lucas. Hey, Bill. Um, thanks for inviting me to talk to you. Sure, no problem. Um, one thing we were thinking of speaking about is um, with the anniversary coming up of 1968, um, some of the linkages there between radicalism in a kind of broad sense and areas that you work on in mental health um, and intoxicants. I wonder if perhaps we could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I've been mulling over uh, radicalism in, uh, in the Americas uh, in the realms of mental health um, and also with respect to the history of drugs and alcohol over the past uh, few months. Um, we're coming up on 2018, right? So it's, it's approaching fast. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this means it's, it's 50 years, uh, 50 years since, uh, since 1968. So, um, yeah, I thought it would be uh, wonderful if we could uh, ruminate on, on this together um, in, in the, the areas of mental health. Uh, I've done some research on the rise and fall of psychedelic medicine. And uh, in 68, of course, is when LSD was banned by the American government and uh, was uh, made illicit for uh, psychiatrists and psychotherapists uh, to use. And um, so just that intersection alone uh, bears consideration. Yeah, I suppose one place maybe to start would be to think about where to broadly position this intersection. Um, is this something that is a, at the fringes of um, the global 68 radicalism, or is this something that you feel um, sort of cuts to the heart of it more? Oh, I suppose... Um, the research that I'm doing now is trying to unpick, uh, unpack some of the linkages between different historiographies. So historiographies of intoxicants and historiographies of mental health. So I'm not entirely sure, uh, Bill, if uh, this is something that resides at the core of, um, of Global 68, but certainly drugs were a big part of the counterculture. Yeah, because I suppose there was a tension there between people who um, saw this as uh, a gateway to some kind of liberation or or a treatment for some kind of condition, versus others who were very suspicious of um, intoxicants as a as an inhibiting factor on political uh, awareness or liberation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it seems to me that there is tremendous debate and contestation about uh, whether or not um, certain hallucinogenic drugs either on the streets or in the clinic might foster a new awareness of some of the troubles facing uh, the, the planet at the time, whether or not that had to do with uh, rising automation of Western civilization or um, militarism or um, advancements in human rights. So you're, I think you're right in flagging that up. And, and do you think that the, the, the notion of uh, 
personal autonomy was what was driving um, a lot of these liberatory uh, experiential uh, drives or do you get a sense from the things you've looked at that it's more about the collective? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, it seems to me that when I started writing about uh, the radical caucus um, in the American Psychiatric Association back in 2013-2014, that was something I was really grappling with. That that uh, the individual versus the collective, and it seems like the radicals of mental health um, were straddling that line, and, and some of them saw drugs as a means to not only curing uh, the individual patient on the couch, but also uh, helping transform society. And, and and so I don't know if it's an either or. I, I think that uh, I might dodge a little bit and say that it was uh, a little from column A and a little from column B. Yeah, and I guess that's an answer that a lot of a lot of radicals at the time gave, which is that you can't, you know, you can't do one without the other. The collective experience um, shouldn't trample on uh, the individual, but at the same time, what is the individual without those connections um, beyond the, the self? Right. Yeah. Um, so psychiatrists um, in in the United States were drawing on literature from uh, people here in the UK. Uh, Artie Lang and I suppose Franz Fanon, who was from France. Uh, these books like The Politics of Experience and the Wretched of the Earth um, were helping them to understand um, how Puerto Ricans were, were being oppressed uh, or how um, uh, other minorities in the United States were, were being oppressed. And, and these sorts of conversations about where, where, where they... Mm, bleed more obviously into what people would understand as mainstream politics. Were, there, were mainstream parties having uh, much of a conversation about this? Yeah, you know what? I, that's also a really good question. And um, one thing that uh, has become more clear to me um, since I first embarked on, on this line of research is that uh, mainstream mental health professionals um, were, in fact, um, had their finger on the pulse, I suppose, is a better way of putting this. So they were, in fact, in touch with, with the times. So uh, the example I've used in the past is uh, ahead of uh, the 16,000-member strong American Psychiatric Association named Raymond Wagoner. He's kind of your you know, quintessential uh, old, rich, white guy. Um, and and yet he was he was very much in tune um, with uh, with change that needed to occur not only in mental uh, health uh, and within the medical marketplace but also within America and and then within uh, more global uh, terms. So Raymond Wagner uh, he he suggested that uh, it was time um, for for change to occur uh, in mental health and. Uh, time for more and more progress. Um, so it wasn't just uh, about sort of fringe radicals uh, with long hair who were uh, wearing tassels and flip-flops. It was also uh, the, the guys at the top. And I suppose that tells us something very important about 1968 was that it it was such a rupture and, and such a society-wide um, moment of questioning of um, 
an existential crisis uh, for for many of the countries in which there were um, strong socio-political movements that it, it was bound to affect anybody who was vaguely attuned to social change. I mean, Bill, you probably know so much more about what's going on um, in, in radicalism in, in the Americas more broadly. I mean, I, I put it to you, um, is this the year that rocked the world and changed everything, as, as, as we've heard? Um, I mean, I, my, I'm sort of reluctant to... to to quite ascribe it that status because of course so much didn't change and and in many ways it, it, there was a successful um, conservative counter-revolution against many of these movements but in terms of the the initial impact of many of the manifestations um, uh, across uh, not everywhere of course it's not it's not truly global although there is global reach but you know many <laughs> billions of people would not have been aware of a global 1968 um on the other hand it, it clearly ended up being a, a totemic um year for for many subsequent movements not only showing uh, inspiration um possible forms of expression possible forms of organization but also showing the limits of those and showing that where perhaps different approaches might be needed um in the years to come um so was was there a sense that there were there were kind of roads not taken um in the areas of mental health and intoxicants at this point or or, or was it still um, very much an optimistic um period in which anything was possible hmm, yeah well certainly with uh hallucinogenic research um there were definitely avenues that were not explored because of um, the banning of LSD, and then um, and, and then afterwards uh, uh, ecstasy or MDMA in, in the mid 1970s. Um, uh, what's interesting when you want to have been, you know, exploring the, the linkages uh, between mental health and intoxicants, what I've discovered uh, is the contemporary relevance of this research because uh, these these different uh, these different drugs are, are coming back. They're they're very much in fashion. Mm. Uh, it, it's uh, I was just having a conversation with a psychiatrist in Bristol uh, last week who's uh, one of the pioneers of MDMA therapy for mm. PTSD uh, here in the UK and. Um, he makes the claim that society is still quite sick um, and that psychiatry itself is stuck. And he, he chalks this up to um, essentially these roads that were not taken in the late 1960s. Mm, yes, I've just coincidentally been listening to uh, another podcast um, where Simon Amstel, the comedian, is talking about how important MDMA and ayahuasca uh, in some kind of conjunction were to his mental health. So it's a, um, it, it, the conversation about drugs that I suppose a majority of the public would only imagine as recreational still, um, mm. as as serious um, treatments, um, that's still an, an open conversation that I guess British society, but probably North American society is, is yet to really have. I'm trying to be uh, as objective about this as I possibly can, but some of the historical research uh, in conjunction with the medical literature out there is, is highly suggestive of 
therapeutic value of, of some of these, uh, these substances. Mm. The, prob- the problem with LSD, um, and it's banning in 1968, uh, to go back to this year, uh, is that it had failed to find a, a suitable pharmaceutical niche. Um, it, it, had, it just wasn't pharmaceuticalized um, at, at the time, and this is partially because there wasn't a, a suitable medical diagnosis for it to align with. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting, too. I mean, 68 is also uh, an important year because uh, of cannabis. Yeah, a uh, debate that's going on now. <laughs> I mean, I'm from Canada, um, and uh, we're, we're embarking on this bold experiment. Um, Trudeau, the younger, yes. um, is following in footsteps of Trudeau, the elder. As I mean, there's a, this brings up. We're thinking about radicalism and and uh, intoxicants. It brings up a tension in in the left tradition between. Um, uh, often a tradition of um, that comes out of various Christian denominations, um, particularly Methodism, of um, of abstinence. Um, and if the conversation were to move towards uh, medicalization or, or treatmentization of uh, of some of these drugs that are commonly conceived of as as purely recreational, the left might be able to deal with the issue a bit more effectively, perhaps. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I suppose I, I haven't probed the religious aspects uh, of this story as much as I should. And maybe you and I have to talk more on that one. Uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, um, both the left and, and the right and, uh, in policy-making circles, at least, um, are, are waiting until the evidence is in. And essentially, this is to, to cover their backsides. They, they want certain substances, whether or not it's cannabis or MDMA or PTSD, um, to go through the, you know, the randomized controlled trials uh, and, and get the stamp of approval from yeah. the regulatory agencies. Does, does that suggest that we are in a place where politicians are more likely to make evidence-based policy now than in 1968, do you think? Oh, good question. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, First of all, what do you think? I, I'd be I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are. Um, I really would struggle to answer that because there's there's still evidently so much uh, fickleness and caprice in politics regarding you know the perception of how a particular policy is going to be received. But on the other hand, people are so much more familiar with the the concepts. Um, the evidence is much more easily um, uh, put about through through the you know democratization of information through the internet and so on. But, but I'm just not sure. I mean, also the last election in the UK really uh, is is being treated by a lot of scholars as some kind of evidence that the power of the tabloid press is diminishing, and that of course has been such a big influence on drug policy. So. I'd, possibly, I don't know. I mean, I'd, uh, yeah. I, I suppose I'm cautiously optimistic about that, but but I'm not sure. Uh, I guess the way I try and answer that question um, is by first referring to uh, Times Higher Education, where I, I read an article um, a couple of weeks ago about this, this dichotomy between 
evidence-based uh, policy and evidence-informed policy. Yeah. And uh, I think often when we say evidence-based, it's that science is always going to immediately lead to policy. So it's A, B, C, D, and so you have all the information that is based on the best research, and then that leads to um, it leads to you know a sound policy. Uh, whereas evidence informed is you know referring to this notion that there are all sorts of political cultural calculations that distract sometimes from the, the science, and that so there's this melting pot uh, of decision making that. Essentially, you're not always going to get the best policy on cannabis or LSD or whatever um, for a number of reasons. Now, that's, I know, I don't want to monologue too much, but that's, I think, one way of starting to answer the question is that we need to recognize the difference between the two. Um, but I, I, I guess I would just try and, as an annex to that, say, um, that there is, at least in a variety of other countries, um, experiments that are going on, um, experiments with drug policy that may or may not be, whether or not it's the UK or uh, USA or whatever else, to, to, to you know, take some bolder steps. And you recently had an article out um, called Heroin in a Hospice. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, so I uh, I thought that I should probably try and communicate some of my uh, research to to physicians. Uh, so I, I wrote a piece about uh, heroin as an end of life therapy in uh, in Canada and uh, the discussion around uh, the discussion around having heroin uh, as one of the, the therapies that a patient uh, with terminal cancer could I mean, it, it kind of, it, it's a, um, it, it's not the most comfortable subject matter in the world, Bill, yeah. um, to, to write about, um, but I think as historians, we have to be able to, to tackle some of these, these issues. Yeah, and does that, again, come down to this sort of disjuncture between what immediately pops into the popular mind if someone says they've got heroin in the hospice, uh, relative to, you know, the, the, the lived experience of people undergoing palliative care? Yeah, it's um, and it's it's a therapy. Heroin is a therapy, uh, a painkiller that generated tons and tons of debate. Yeah. It's not something. It's not. It's not something that was uh, easily accepted in Canada. Um, but the story is important. Uh, I think it's important for lots of reasons, not just the way we treat uh, people at the end of their life who are suffering tremendous amounts of pain. Um, we should be thinking about that because. Some of us may be going through that at some stage, yeah. um, but 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 also because um, of this opioid crisis that we have now, absolutely uh, in the Western world. So yeah, it's it's an extremely pressing issue. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else you wanted to flag up in your in your current projects? Um, no, I I don't think necessarily. Um, 
Do you want me to plug a few things? Or Well, uh, give us the title of your book, and I'll, put, I'll stick a link to it in the description under the podcast as well. Okay, yeah. Um, thanks for raising the issue of... Uh, of heroin um, in the Canadian Medical Association channel. Um, while it isn't the most uplifting topic in the world, um, maybe some of your listeners would want to take a, a read of that. Um, yeah. If if your um, if your listeners want to read about radicalism in the pharmaceutical industry, um, uh, you can just uh, uh, find my book, a, Pre- a Prescription for Scandal, uh, which is about the politics of deregulation. Uh, in the 70s and the 80s and how that uh, negatively impacted um, health in the pharmaceutical industry. There's a there's a flyer out right now um, on my website, lucasrecord.com, uh, that'll get you 30% off that book. Excellent. I'll put a link up to that. So, well, thanks very much for speaking with Radical Americas, uh, Lucas. It's been a really interesting and revealing um, conversation. I'm sure we'll provoke a lot of, um, you know, it's, it, these are things that we all, as you say, that some of us will have to personally grapple with at some point. So it's important things to think about, both politically and personally. Bill, yeah, thanks for having me. You know, it was great talking to you. Congratulations on your little one. Oh, thank you very much. Cheers. Lucas Rickett there, um, alluding to the recent birth of my daughter, which is one reason why this episode has taken rather longer to get out. Apologies for that. Now a chat I had with Nicole Wilson uh, back in August last year. I'm here at the British Library uh, with Dr Nicole Wilson, um, University of Kent, and we're going to start off by talking a bit about International Slavery Remembrance Day. We're in the month of August, it takes place at the end of August, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how that came about and what it represents. Um, So, Nicole... Thank you, Bill. Um, Well, International Slavery Remembrance Day is marked on uh, the 23rd of August. And um, this is a a designated day by UNESCO as um, officially the International Day for the Remembrance of uh, the Slave Trade and its Abolition. Um, So there's kind of lots of sort of political discussions to be had around that because it's also about abolition, you know, it's also celebrating... Um, the histories of elite white men as well as of slaves Um, and there's also another slavery remembrance day which happens in March which actually celebrates um, which is meant to commemorate slavery and the victims of slavery so obviously that has kind of different political discussions connected with it Um, but the reason that, that this Um, This commemorative event happens on August the 23rd is because um, this was the date that the slave insurrection began in the colony of Saint-Domingue. And this slave insurrection um, eventually uh, exploded into a huge uh, revolution, uh, which we now refer to as the Haitian Revolution, um, because... It ended in the formation of the independent Black Republic of Haiti. Um, So it's very interesting that we choose to celebrate this moment in the kind of revolutionary calendar because uh, the revolution was obviously not kind of a a linear event um, but an event that, that had this kind of circular energy and was 
articulated and performed by various different groups with competing and often conflicting interests at different time periods. So um, although um, August 23rd, um, 1791 is thought to be the date of the slave insurrection, um, there was in fact a, a voodoo ceremony that was performed two weeks prior to this insurrection, which many scholars agree as the kind of starting point of the revolution. This was the moment that, um, that slaves and free people of colour came together um, to really kind of um, galvanise and, um, and, and champion the spirit of revolution. Um, but, but two years prior to this, there had al already been um, kind of an, an uprising um, instigated by the free man of colour, Vincent Auger. And um, there was much agitation going on prior to this among free communities of colour who were lobbying um, the National Assembly for uh, more rights for um, men of colour. Um, so eventually um, these kinds of interests galvanised at some point. So um, people of colour across all across the political spectrum, across the class spectrum, came together um, in a common cause to unite against colonialist forces. Um, but of course their, their interests were, were very divergent and those, those, in, those competing and conflicting interests really kind of showed their faces in the wake of Haitian independence. So I think it's very difficult to kind of confine this, um, this kind of huge phenomenon into one singular event. Yeah, and that's really interesting that it gets tied down to a, to a particular day. I mean, it has to be, obviously, for there to be a day of remembrance, yeah. but, the, but to choose one that's um, rooted in a kind of a, a very clear um, material event yes. um, and one which leads into the longer process rather than one which is truncated or one which is seen as a kind of failed uprising so it's, it's, it's sort of rooting it in a, a particular point whereas as you're saying if there, there are kind of circular elements to this or you know, ebbs and flows within the process and of course there's much wider ebbs and flows internationally and that, this, yes. that, that Haiti should be the locus of this when what's come up recently in some of these debates about the nature of the British Empire for instance, have been this kind of oh well of course one of the great things about the British Empire was they took the lead on abolition yes. and, and, and people kind of willing this narrative of you know, privileged white men in frock coats and yeah. <laughs> leading yeah. the charge whereas this date in one sense roots it very concretely in the rebellion of people of colour yes. uh, um, but perhaps in doing so, then it, it, it threatens to overlook um, some of the nuance or subtleties in the Haitian side of the history. Yes, I think that that is true. Um, I mean, certainly from, from a Haitian perspective, um, there is a, a need to, to celebrate um, the kind of um, teenag or, or small man, um, and not just the kind of big events or big people. Um, in the kind of uh, revolutionary pantheon, um, so you know, while while I do think that it's it's really important that we're we're anchoring um, this commemorative event in this revolutionary moment, authored 
by uh, people of colour, we really do need to think about the nuances. Perhaps to tie this into some of your other work and other projects, I mean, one thing you're also working on is um, a project on um, the actions of some free men of colour. Yes, um, yeah, I'm actually currently writing an article for a special issue of uh, Slavery and Abolition um, for the Africa's Sons Under Arms project, uh, which looks at the Chasseurs de Volontaires de Saint-Domingue, who were the free men of colour who volunteered um, to go and fight in the Battle of Savannah um, against the British and alongside um, the revolutionary forces um, in America. Um, so, you know, these, these men represent a really interesting case study uh, because there's, there's not much that's been written on them and in fact there's, there's not much kind of archival documentation about them but there's lots of kind of mythology surrounding them and uh, you know how they, they transported um, and, and how they, they brought with them from America these kind of new revolutionary ideals. And I suppose the, when, this is something that scholars of northern Latin America, the Caribbean, the, the southern US, will be aware of. But in the popular conception of the, the kind of age of revolutions, Haiti often gets missed out, whereas it's, it's, it's absolutely central to a lot of these processes. And, and certainly what happens afterwards, it becomes always held up as this sort of demonic totem of the way revolutions go wrong. And you yeah. see this with a lot of the Latin American independence movements. But, yeah. but going back to to those uh, earlier battles there there is a kind of real entanglement between between Haiti and the nations surrounding it yeah absolutely I mean um, you know I look at that revolutionary period as as one where um, not just goods and people but ideas were being circulated across the Atlantic between France America and colonial Saint-Domingue and um, you know a, a lot of these uh, these free men of color who went off to fight in America um, also went off to study in Europe. They were circulating with the same uh, kinds of people uh, who were, were championing ideals of, of liberty, fraternity and equality. Um, that's not to say that, that this is where they heard these ideas and, and you know, that they um, didn't have any kind of thoughts about these things themselves because they did um, and they in fact created their own uh, salons and, and forums for discussing uh, these these ideas because they were often excluded from the, the societies um, in which these these things were discussed. And revolutionary France, I mean, the timing of it is interesting because it's right in the middle of the French Revolution, of course, and that's related. Um, but the, the French revolutionary currents had quite differing and contradictory attitudes about Haiti and about slavery and about colonies, and, and this presumably added to that sense of um, tension and confusion in the run-up uh, yeah. to the rebellion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, although in in the initial stages of the French Revolution, it seemed that uh, French uh, revolutionaries were keen to kind of support um, the the Saint Domingan, or the, the the cause of slaves and free men of colour to um, achieve more rights, um, and in fact. Um, abolished slavery in, in 1794 throughout the colonies. Um, they later reimposed slavery. Um, Napoleon, in fact, reimposed slavery and, um, and, and captured uh, the leading revolutionary Toussaint Louverture. 
and brought him back to France where, where he died in, in a French prison. Um, moving forward through time, uh, somewhat rapidly, you're not only working on uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, you're also working on something um, to do with Langston Hughes, I understand. Yes, I am. Um, well, I mean, my, my interest in the Haitian Revolution kind of uh, transcends history. As, as I was saying to you before, I look at uh, the Haitian Revolution not as this kind of singular event, but as this phenomenon with this sort of circular repeating energy. So I really am concerned with the transgenerational legacies of um, the Haitian Revolution. And at the moment, I'm, I'm also writing an article for a special issue of Comparative American Studies, which looks at the relationship between um, the Harlem Renaissance writer Langston Hughes and uh, the Haitian writer and political activist Jacques Roumain. And um, an ex it, the article essentially explores um, this idea that uh, these uh, artists, these activists created this, um, what I call a teen egg aesthetic, this small man aesthetic, um, celebrating um, the kind of ethics of the Haitian peasantry and um, the shared kind of common values and, and revolutionary um, ancestral traditions of peasant culture. It's interesting sitting here in the British Library as the Russian Revolution uh, centenary exhibition is about to come to an end, thinking about that circularity and about how those ideas ebb and flow um, throughout the centuries, because of course it's uh, you know, a much older vintage, <laughs> the, the Haitian Revolution, but one that still has resonances way down to through the 20th century into today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you very much for speaking to Radical Americas, Nicole Wilson. Thank you. Thank you to both Lucas Rickett and Nicole Wilson for taking part in this episode of the Radical Americas podcast. To find out more about the Radical Americas Network, please go to RadicalAmericas.org. To find out more about the Radical Americas Journal, please go to the UCL Press website.